Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. I don't need to tell you that we live in a crazy time. I mean, pandemic aside, even for a moment, what's going on economically to the side, we still live in a time when there are more refugees, more people that have been displaced than ever before, people escaping war, famine, oppression. Humans are still being trafficked at a greater rate than during the transatlantic slave trade. Did you know that? The world is groaning as there's increased environmental degradation. There is poverty. There is war. There is the violence daily that occurs against women and children. We experience uh, an ongoing cry for racial justice because there are those who continue to experience daily, even in Canada, in the U.S., daily the experience of being judged, being held down, due to their skin color. We, we know that there's a fractiousness that is existing within our culture. There's deep polarization, and that affects even the church. We live in a crazy time. And as a result, there's a lot of conversation about what the solutions are, how to fix things, what should be done. That's only natural, because when we see all these things happening, we want to look for an answer. Some ask, how do we get back to the time when things were better? And they've got solutions for how that might occur. Others maybe ask the question differently. How do we move forward so that things are better than they've ever been before? And they've got their answers too. And the answers we give tell us a lot about ourselves, tell us a lot about the worldviews that we have. We've talked about this before. Our solutions reveal our worldview. Remember the questions, the basic worldview questions? I've explored them before. Questions of who are we, our identity? Uh, Where are we, or what's the nature of the reality around us? Um, What's wrong with the world, and what's the remedy? And then, of course, what's our part in it? Those are basic worldview questions that all philosophies, all uh, different religious groups, and political groups often will answer those questions in certain ways, and it tells us something about their worldview. Well, today, we're going to explore a period of time when God's covenant people were spiraling into chaos. Things were crazy for them, too. Things were violent and abusive. People were divided. People were unfaithful. And there's a historian in the Bible who wrote a book called the Book of Judges, and he wants us to feel the despair of that era so that he can then pose his solution to the chaos. I invite you today to see if you agree or disagree with the solution that he provides. You may be new to the faith or maybe just exploring the Christian faith, and this story may be fairly new to you. I invite you to listen in, to explore it further and see, does this solution make sense to you? 
perhaps you've been in the faith a long time and you're fairly well known in these stories and you're familiar with people like Samson or Gideon, maybe this will provide a fresh challenge for you as you try to answer the question, do I agree with the solution that the author of the Judges provides? Let's see also if there's any relevance for us today. I think there might be. Well, we're continuing on with our renewed series for one more week before we take a bit of a a breather and do something different for the month of July. But in the renewed series, we've seen God rescue his people, make a covenant with them, and then bring them into the land that he had promised their ancestors hundreds of years before. This covenant that God made expresses his desire that his people would be a unique and holy people, an anointed and called people, that they would live in the land in right relationship with him and with each other in a way that they would actually bear witness to the whole world about the character and the goodness of God. And God gives them all the supports that they need to do it. And God's really clear with them when he makes this covenant. He said, faithfulness will lead to flourishing, but unfaithfulness will lead to floundering, to exile. And yet, all the gifts and all the promises that God gives, all the support and all the guidance, all the things that you think would have been enough for them, aren't. Almost immediately, God's people forsake God's covenant with them. And the rest of the story, as they say, is history, biblical history, and, let's be honest, depressing history. Today, we're going to sweep through this story of the Judges. It's the seventh book in the Bible, and it's the time period immediately following the conquest of Canaan. It bridges the time they enter the land to the time when the first kings begin. We're not going to dive too deep into any particular story today. I'm actually hoping you'll do that on your own. There's some epic stuff in here. And I invite you to return to this story right here in the week that follows and continue to wrestle with the implications for us today. Well, to set the story up, the writer of Judges gives us a very important overview of the story. And he gives it to us very early in the book. He wants us to discern a historical pattern in the life of Israel, a pattern that repeats itself over hundreds of years. Listen for this pattern as I read the author of Judges' overview, his own overview of the whole story. This is found in Judges chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. This is how it goes. After that whole generation, he's talking about the generation that actually came into the land. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Astaroths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. 
just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. What a depressing way to start a story. And Judges chronicles the downward spiral of God's people into destruction. They forsake the God who saved them, the God who gifted them the land. God allows tribes to oppress them, then they cry out to God, then God responds by raising up a judge and they enjoy a time of peace. But eventually, and it seems like inevitably, they forsake God again and go after other gods and And the downward spiral continues, with each successive story getting worse and worse. That's the pattern, the overview that the author wants us to see in this book called Judges. And then to put flesh on the bones, the historian now fills out this skeletal pattern with some real-life stories of some of the judges. Uh, He starts with, you know, some okay judges, Othniel and Ehud and, and Deborah, and, and, and that's great. But then they move on to get quite bad, Gideon, and then worse, Jephthah, culminating in the wickedly strong Samson, who is himself not only a terrible leader, but is actually a sick parody of Israel, embodying in himself this special anointing but also flagrant unfaithfulness, embodying himself the reality that's true for all of God's people. It's brutal. And it's been said that people often get the leaders that they deserve, and the writer of Judges seems to concur with that. But the writer of Judges isn't done. To cap off this chaos, which forms the center of the book of Judges, chronicling all these different judges as they descend and get worse and worse. The writer of Judges then caps off the whole story by relaying two more stories at the very end of Judges. One story which features horrendous idolatry, and then a second story which details horrific injustice, nauseating injustice, in fact, in its violence against women. Idolatry and injustice, do you remember those themes? We actually explored them a few weeks ago. And the story of Judges provides us yet more illustrations of this, these uh, two twins, this biblical principle that wherever there is idolatry, injustice is sure to follow. And wherever there is injustice, look for the idolatry. And why is that? Well, all people have been created in the image of God. That's basic to our identity. It's basic to how we understand one another and everyone who's around us. 
Now, in that sense, human beings are the only images, you can even say idols, it's the same word, the only images of God that God permits to exist in creation. Not so that images can be worshipped, that's not allowed, but rather these human images of God, we are designed to reflect God's character and care to the world. That's actually our nature. It's how we were created as images of God. The logic of it is this, and the reason why idolatry ruins humans, is that whenever people turn away from the worship of the true God and worship other things as images, whether it's gold things or even ideological things, then they immediately abuse and deface human beings because those human beings are no longer images of God. They now degrade them because they will treat them as less than they truly are. Idolatry always leads to injustice, to abuse, to violence, particularly against those most vulnerable and powerless. I encourage you to look for it. It's everywhere, whether it's through history or even in our contemporary culture. So what's the solution to this chaos? What's the solution to this downward spiral? Well, in this final section in Judges, chapters 17 to 21, the writer begins to point toward his solution, and he wants us to see it. He bookends this final section with the exact same statement. In Judges 17.6, we read these words. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And then the very final verse of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25 We hear the exact same words. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And friends, whenever a biblical writer does that kind of thing, when they repeat something or they bookend something, it's really important. They want us to see something. Something that we need to pay attention to. Well, what's more, the writer here reinforces his point two other times right in the middle of the story. In Chapter 18, verse 1, and chapter 19, verse 1, he only says part of the phrase, but he repeats the phrase, in those days Israel had no king. Four times he makes that statement. Do you see what's going on here? The writer has just given us a very grim accounting of Israel's unfaithfulness, of how bad it's really gotten. He wants to say, look at how dismal things are. Look at how terrible everything has become. And what's the solution? What will turn this destruction around? What do we need to be faithful again? We need a king, the writer of Judges says. We need a king. Without a king, we're going to continue to self-destruct. Without a king, we won't remain faithful to the covenant that God made with us. Without a king... We're never going to experience peace. Without a king, we won't be able to drive out the enemies or rule over this land that God has given us. Judges won't help us. They're a failed project. Look at those losers. Every tribe for himself or itself won't help us. That will lead us to civil war, which is the last story in the book of Judges. We need a king. We need a king who will unite us, a king who will be faithful to God's covenant, a king who will lead us out of this mess and into faithful worship 
into right community. We need a king. And as many commentators have pointed out, the terrible story of the judges sets us up for a more redemptive story. Story of kings. And as 1 Samuel begins, we're then meant to see the anointing of Saul, but actually he's a bit of a false start. He didn't turn out very well. So then actually we're meant to see the anointing of David as the king that we do need, the king that God anoints, who will be what Israel needed their king to be so that Israel could be all that God had intended. And so we come full circle to where we began. Our solution reveals our worldview. And in this case of the writer of Judges, it's no less true. The solution of kingship reveals something of his worldview, of where he thought the solution lies. For the writer of Judges, his solution of kingship tells us that if we don't have a king, we can't live rightly. If we don't have a king, the world will continue to be chaotic, violent. We will continue to be unfaithful. But you know, the same kind of answers are still given today. We look around at a world that is terribly divided, a violent, abusive, fragmented world where the poor are continually stomped on and the vulnerable are consistently shoved to the side. And we argue for solutions to the problem that frankly aren't very different than this. I mean, the standard solution to today's problems is a variation on kingship. We need better politicians. We need better leaders. We need more robust policies. Actually, what we need, or we say we need, is a solution to today's problems that look an awful lot like, well, the leaders that we would vote for, uh, the policies that we agree with, the man or the woman that we want in the house or on the hill. We think that if we could just get the right party in and the other idiots out, we could just do that, then we could right this ship and at least get back to or go forward to those better days that we all dream of. But the solution is essentially the same. What's the solution in a world gone mad? More power. Uh, How can we solve this global crisis or national crisis? Better rule. How do we make things right? Through decisive leadership. What's the remedy to all of our ills? Well, our king on the throne. We wouldn't say king, but maybe our party or our policies or our plans. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Well, today we can fill in the blank. Everyone does as they saw fit, yes, and the answer that's given is usually an appeal to some kind of power, some kind of kingship. The question for us is this. Was this answer correct? Is kingship the answer? Well, let's start back with the judges and then move forward. Was his solution of a king the right answer to Israel's problems? to what they had become? Well, the answer is no. And yes. Let's first start with the no. A king on the throne did not, in fact, solve the problem of Israel's 
unfaithfulness. As the story rolls out, which is detailed in 1st and 2nd Samuel and then 1st and 2nd Kings, kings, in fact, in spite of all the hopes that we had, kings only actually led Israel more deeply into sin, more deeply into idolatry. Yeah, there were some good, good kings, don't get me wrong, but even their greatest king, David, who was only their second king, and they peaked at that point, even their greatest king, David, was himself a deeply flawed character. He didn't solve Israel's unfaithfulness. And then his kids, the kings that followed him, they were mostly bad. And under their leadership, we witnessed more widespread idolatry and more systemic injustice. Under their leadership, Israel went into free fall, right up to the point, hundreds of years later, when Babylon, another foreign power, hauled them off into exile. The story of kings ends uh, on a, a weird sort of note, where the final king is allowed to eat dinner at the table of the Babylonian king, who's his overlord. And you sort of have the image of the Babylonian king giving him a little pat on top of the head. That's how it ends. It's tragic. Kings did not save Israel. Or at least the kind of king that they were looking for sure didn't do it. And that's where I guess we have to point beyond our initial no. That might have been too quick. We have to maybe affirm that there is a deeper truth going on that that actually, in answer to kingship, yes, is also a correct answer. It's just that the kind of king that's needed is not the kind of king that everyone was expecting. When Israel first demanded a king, a little later in the book of 1 Samuel, they actually wanted a king because they looked around at the other nations and they said, hey, they all got kings. We don't have a king. We want a king like they have a king. They wanted a king like the other nations had. And this too turned out to be a failed project. But God, in his wisdom, but also in the way that God is, where he, he takes often our frailty and our brokenness and he runs with it, he works with it, he even incorporates it into his plan. God in his wisdom takes their desire for a king and he runs with it himself. You want a king? I'll give you a king. And he did. He gave them kings. But more than that, God promised to give them a king in the same family line as David himself, but this time a king who's not like the kings of the other nations, who's not like any king that they ever had. This king that was promised would be God's own son. This king would truly rule over all the nations. This king would come and be exalted for all to see. The king that's needed, though, would only be found at the coming of Jesus Christ, who was truly the anointed son of David, the Messiah, who doesn't look anything like any other king that had come before him or since. This is a king who will answer the unfaithfulness of Israel with his own perfect covenant faithfulness. This is a king who will unify those who were divided through his sacrificial death. This is a king who will demonstrate his power through his weakness on a cross. A king who will defeat his enemies 
by dying for them so that they can then become his children. A true and lasting king. So yes, a king is the right answer, just not the kind of king that anyone was looking for. Now I know at this point, even in this renewed series, you can think Tom is a bit of a broken record because no matter where we're at in the story, I always want to point us to Jesus. Well, the truth is that's how this story works, that every story we come to, through every twist and every plot turn, ultimately points us to Jesus Christ. Not in a trite way, but in a deep way. To this renewal that's needed, that can only be found in the incarnation of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And what we discover is so profound that in a world that demands power, Jesus comes in weakness, in frailty. In a world where might makes right, Jesus comes in humility and in poverty, in total obscurity. That in a world that elevates the proud and ignores the humble, Jesus blesses the poor in spirit and then leads his followers into service for the world. And around himself, Jesus gathers a new community, a new creation community. He inaugurates a new kingdom that's built, built on entirely different foundations based on a new covenant of sacrificial love where we're called to love one another as he has loved us in the power of the Holy Spirit that he gave to us. Well, where does this all leave us today? There are some implications for us. I like to draw out two. The first one is that we are called to be prophets without power. Let me explain that. Because I want to talk a little bit about politics. Those of you who know me well know that um, I actually often am fearful to talk about political things because I'm the kind of person who likes everyone to like me. And so then when I talk about things that inevitably get people stoked, um, I don't enjoy that. So uh, this is me bearing my soul to you today and just being honest that there's something in this message of Judges that challenges that in me and I think perhaps in you. To be a prophet without power, what I mean by that is this. We are called in the name of Jesus to speak the truth into our culture, but not to do it in a way that others try to do it. In other words, we speak the truth of who God is and his grace and his good news and what Jesus has done, but we do it without trying to seize the reins of power. In other words, we share the good news of Jesus in the way that Jesus actually taught us to share it. Truth is, we are, as I already said earlier, in a time when the church is quite polarized, where people who follow Jesus have profound, um, divisive disagreements on the solutions that are needed in the world today. Many of the solutions being offered are really a seeking of power, a way of gaining control. But here's the thing. This story reminds us, and all through the scriptures as we see Jesus, it reminds us that as followers of Jesus, we do not profess allegiance to any political power. In fact, in the name of Jesus, we are not called to seize power at all. Having said that, 
We are called to speak in ways that challenge those who are in power. And in that sense, we are called to be prophetic. It means that as followers of Jesus, we need to speak up for those who are often downtrodden. We need to speak up about racial injustice. We need to speak up about the plight of the poor. We need to speak up for those who have no voice, whether that be the aged or the dying, whether that be the unborn, whether that be women who are suffering violence at the hands of men, whether that be people who are being uh, prejudiced because of the color of their skin. We're to speak up for those who have no voice. We're to speak truth, the truth of God's word, to those who are in power and call them to account. But to do that in the way of Christ. To do that without trying to seize power, without trying to use the weapons that others use, but to do do that in the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus. What that means as Christians is that we reject this bid for power. We don't buy into the idea that is sometimes suggested that all we need is a, a bigger, more powerful leader who can beat everyone else. We don't buy that because we already have a leader. We already have a king. And he led us to the cross. He led us in weakness. He led us through suffering. And he called us to go into the world to announce the good news of his reign in the way that he did, which is the way of suffering, the way of powerlessness. Now, I know this can really challenge us because we can be very eager that the things that we believe and the things that, that we hold dear will be the things that are, that are enforced, the things that are held up. I know that temptation is there. But the challenge we're given through Scripture is to speak the truth through the love of Christ, in the name of Christ, and in the way of Christ. And this story of Judges reminds us that it's only the kind of kingship that Jesus brings that will ultimately bring renewal. We are called to be prophets without power. Related to that, we are called to be witnesses through our weakness. We need to remember at all points whose we are, that we are witnesses to the true king of all history, the true king of all creation, and that his throne was a cross. His power was in sacrifice, and the people who follow him will do the same. We will witness to Jesus through our suffering. And whenever the church has forgotten that, I invite you to read through Christian history the last 2,000 years and see that whenever the church has decided we actually want to follow Christ but use worldly power to do it, we've let go of the good news of Christ. We've forsaken the gospel. We are called to follow Jesus in the way of Jesus. And his grace is ultimately only seen through the weakness that is demonstrated through the life of Christ and through his followers. This is counterintuitive. It's just as counterintuitive then as it is now. We're told that this grace that can be seen through Christ is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. That is, this idea that God would have a king that hung on a cross is is stupid to most people. But it's only through the cross that the true king has been revealed. We are called to align ourselves with the good news of Jesus and to reject any bid for power with the world. My hope for all of us as we consider our political engagement today 
is that we will never forget that we already have a king, a king who suffered, a king who died, and a king who calls us to follow him in the same way. The story of Judges reminds us that it's only one kind of king that will bring a solution to the chaos. Friends, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. And the answer that is given is beyond even the writer himself. The answer was not a king like David. It's a king like Jesus. And through Jesus, only through Jesus, the world is being set to rights. Not by the power of the sword, not by the power of political policy, but by the witness of love, by the sacrificial giving up of ourselves in the name of Christ. It's not shown by grasping for higher position, but by taking, in fact, the position of a servant, the position of our servant king, Jesus Christ, who washed the feet of the world and then went to the cross for its salvation. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time or you have been following him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.